Hi all and welcome back to What Happened. This is True Crime Chronicles and part two of the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. We left off last episode in May of 1991. By this time, Jeff had sexually assaulted and killed 12 boys and young men, both at his grandmother's house, the Ambassador Hotel, and at his current address at apartment 213 in the Oxford Apartments. By now, Jeff was killing someone every few weeks. At the time of Tony Hughes' murder in, 19, in May 1991, he had also started experimenting with different killing techniques, and he was actively trying to make what he later called a zombie. He used drilling techniques, which involved drilling into the skull of a victim while they were alive but unconscious, and injecting muriatic acid, and sometimes boiling water in a few human beings. He used this technique on his next victim, whom he lured to apartment 213, also in May of 1991, Conorac Synthes With Conorac, a few things happened which came out in court. To me, this was definitely the most incredible and disturbing part of the entire case. Conorac Synthes aged 14, and his seven siblings and their parents fled Laos to Wisconsin in 1979 for a better opportunity. Now, if we remember the previous episode, Dahmer was arrested and found guilty of child sexual assault for the drugging of the 13-year-old at his grandmother's house three years before. Remember that? That 13-year-old victim was the older brother of Conorac Synthesimophone. As a matter of fact, Jeffrey was still on probation from that sexual assault charge when his path and Conorac's paths fatefully met that May. Dahmer met Conorac in a mall in Milwaukee. As with most of his other victims, he offered the boy money in exchange for being able to take some photos of the boy. As the family was struggling, struggling financially at this time, Conorac reluctantly agreed, although it's unclear what he may or may not have known about Jeffrey at this time. Shockingly, Jeffrey says that he had no idea that this boy was the brother of the earlier victim, and it was just literally a horrible coincidence. There isn't any evidence to the contrary. So he brings Conorac home to apartment 213. He drugged Conorac as easily as he did all the others. Jeff must have been feeling invincible at this point, or maybe he was just waiting for the shoe to drop. With Conorac, he also decided to attempt to create a living zombie and drilled into his head while he was unconscious. He injected muriatic acid and waited to see what would happen. Synthesimophone didn't die right away, So Jeff decided to go to the store, as he frequently did during his killings and dismemberings, to buy more alcohol. He left Conorac there, assuming that he was incapacitated. He is wrong. While Jeff has gone to the store, Conorac regains some consciousness. Who knows what that little boy was thinking at that point. He had been drugged, then tortured with the acid. Astoundingly, he he had to have some of his faculties still intact, because he attempted to get away. He got out of Jeff's locked apartment, down the hall, and out the door of the building. He was witnessed stumbling up the street. Two teenage girls found him after he found his way outside the apartment naked and then drugged acting. He was staggering and falling, according to the girls. They also say he was naked and bleeding from the rectum and possibly his head. The teenage girls called 911, saying that he was beat up and naked and drunk or something and to send someone right away. 
while they were on the phone with 911, a man appeared. This man told them that he recognized the boy, that the boy was his lover, and that he was drunk. This man was Jeff Dahmer. When the police showed up, the girls are literally struggling with Dahmer to physically stop him from trying to take Conorak home. The fire department and the police both show up. The police tried to question Conorak, who was unable to respond. They didn't call paramedics. They didn't bring him to a hospital. They further stated that the entire situation was really scary, the teenage girls this is, and that they were not comfortable allowing the drug boy to go with this man. Dahmer told the police the same thing. He stayed really calm, and the police pretty much took the white man's word over the young black girl back in the 90s. The police followed Jeff home to follow up on to see if Jeff was telling the truth. Jeff showed them some some photos that he had taken of Conorak just that day, um, semi-nude photos. And the police, it being the 1990s, homosexuality was treated a lot different than than it is today. Um, They just accepted Jeff's word, and they left. They just really wanted to get out of the situation, it seems like. They are later recorded on calls making jokes about the situation. It came out in court this, and one of the officers talked about how he would have to get deloused after accompanying Jeff and his gay lover home. Inexcusable, unprofessional, unethical, and ultimately this casual attitude of the Milwaukee police resulted in more murders. According to Jeff, within one hour of bringing Conorak home this time, he was dead. Jeff injected him with another dose of acid, and it was fatal to the 14-year-old. This victim came so close to being possibly rescued and certainly bringing down Jeff's murderous house of cards. If they had made one phone call to check on Jeff, who was currently on probation for sexual assault of a child, or one better look around the apartment, they would have found Anthony Sears' dead body, which was left out in the open on Jeff's bed in the bedroom. But they didn't. Later on, the officers involved in bringing Conorak back to Jeffrey Dahmer to kill him lost their jobs when the local residents found out what happened and there was an uproar. However, they got reinstated a few years later with back pay. One of the teenage girls who found Conorak went home very troubled after the incident and told her aunt Glenda, who called the police again, stating that she was concerned about the age of the boy. Her call is recorded and she is heard repeatedly telling the officers that she thought it was a child and were they sure he was an adult? They are heard repeatedly telling her that he is a gay adult and was brought back to his lover's gay home. This was the boy that had just been drilled into by Jeffrey Dahmer. What a heartbreaking and shocking twist. If they had been stopped then, The resulting murders would not have happened, and a few more boys and men would still have their lives. Jeff eventually bought a big vat for use. He would put muriatic muriatic acid in it, and this is where he would dissolve his victim's body parts. Around this time, his neighbors started complaining about the smell coming from apartment 213. Some went right to Jeff's door. Neighbor Pamela Bass of apartment 214 went to his door repeatedly, Uh, Once he told her that his freezer had stopped working and that the meat inside had spoiled. In June 1991, Jeff killed Matt Turner, age 20. He killed Jeremiah Weinberg, age 23, in July 1991. 
and then Oliver Lacey, age 24, in the same month, July of 1991. His next victim, Joseph Bradenhaft, who was age 25 when he met Jeff, became his next victim, also killed in July 1991. By this time, Jeffrey is killing someone pretty much every week or so. Things take a fateful turn for Jeffrey Dahmer on July 22, 1999. Sorry, 1991. This is when Jeff meets 32-year-old Tracy Edwards. This is Jeff's last day of freedom. And Tracy is his last would-be victim. He brings Tracy Edwards home. Jeff says this time he didn't have any sleeping pills, so he tried to get him really drunk and then take advantage of him. At some point, he gets one handcuff on Tracy and takes out a knife. He keeps Tracy there for, for a while at knife point, but at some point, Tracy tells Jeff he has to go to the bathroom and he takes off out the front door and out of the apartment building. He runs down the street and he sees a police officer. He tells the police what just happened and they accompany him back to Jeff's apartment. Now keep in mind, they don't know what we know now. Even though there is some obvious and blatantly shoddy police work done in this case, they bring him back with the idea of getting the handcuff unlocked and straining and, sorry, getting more information into this alleged unlawful confinement situation. So they bring Tracy back to apartment 213. When they get there, <laughs> Jeff actually answers the door and lets them in. And this is the end, folks. What they find inside apartment 213 in the Oxford Apartments that night became a part of history and has never been forgotten, even now, over 30 years later. Tracy tells the police officer to look in the fridge. This must be based on something Jeff has said to him during the time he had him confined. And the police officer does. Inside the fridge, they find a human head. The officer that found the head said that he found a human head with all the skull, with all the skin and everything on it, and its eyes and mouth wide open. They immediately arrest Jeffrey Dahmer and then call for backup. Can you imagine what they were thinking that day? A normal, they thought, normal beat day for these cops? Can you imagine what Tracy Edwards was thinking? When police searched apartment 213, the things they found were what I think I remember the most in the news. Jeff's apartment, when it was searched, included 85 photos of victims that were found by police, some of them victims alive, some of them were not. Some of the photos were of victims being dismembered. They brought the barrel out that night on the news. We found out in the trial what that was used for. I watched freezers come out, various boxes and bags. It was scary. Police found photos of Conorak, both alive and dead, in Jeff's apartment. Some of the other pieces of evidence recovered from Jeff's apartment were the acid-filled vat. It contained human body parts and heads. They found human heads in the fridge and freezer, a sketch of an altar that Jeff was building, an assortment of knives and saws just lying on the floor, a hypodermic needle, and an electric drill also just lying on the floor. There were lots of evidence from the photos to bleached skulls. Jeff later admitted to eating the heart, liver, and thighs of human beings. He estimates that he has consumed about 10 pounds of human meat in total. He was initially accused of hate crimes because predominantly his victims were black. But Jeff says he was attracted to certain body types and beauty, and that was who he chose as victims. People he found beautiful. 
but it is important to note that he moved into a predominantly black neighborhood, into a predominantly black apartment building, and most of his victims were young black men. They also found skulls that Jeff had painted for his altar. Ultimately, the remains of 11 victims were found inside apartment 213. When the evidence was found by police, Jeff waived his right to counsel and decided to tell the police everything. He outlined all of the murders and where any remains were, including Stephen Hicks' remains, right, in his family home in the backyard. He confessed to killing 17 people. He says he started when he was 18 years old, just after graduating high school. He wound up being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and schizotypal personality disorder. This was used as an attempted defense in his case, as he claimed an, an insanity defense at his trial. In an insanity defense, the burden of insanity is on the defense, different than the burden of proof, which is on the prosecution in a regular trial. Legal definition of insane means the person suffers from a mental illness or defect and lacks the substantial capacity to understand the difference between right and wrong or unable to control their conduct to the requirements of the law. Now let's get to the things that pointed to him knowing the acts were wrong. These things were he had to get drunk to kill and dismember people. That proves that he knew it was wrong and felt bad. He would pull the curtains beforehand. He had vats of acid to dispose of the bodies. He had a bunch of locks on his door, etc. All knowing it was wrong, trying to hide what he was doing. He was legally found guilty and responsible and sane. It went to the jury on a Friday and came back on late Saturday. There were no comments from his father and stepmother or grandmother. No doubt he had mental diseases and conditions, no doubt at all. But did he meet the legal criteria of insanity? It doesn't seem so. He knew right from wrong and he definitely knew what he was doing was wrong. He could also stop his actions by the nine year gap between his first and second killings would indicate. At the sentencing hearing, the families could speak and they did. It was gut-wrenching to watch them in their agony. A particularly hard to watch part involved the sister of Errol Lindsay. When she spoke to Jeff in court, she lost her composure. She started screaming at him and physically went after him in court. She had to be bodily restrained by the court deputies. Wisconsin was a state with no death penalty, so Jeff was not, you know, up for the death penalty. He was quoted at the sentencing hearing as saying this, Your Honor, it is over now. This has never been a case of trying to get free. I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world what I did. What I did not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I know I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness, and now I have some peace. He went on to say that killing was a means to an end, and that the least satisfactory part of it was that. I didn't enjoy doing that, he said. That's why I tried to create living zombies with uric acid in the drill. But it never worked. No, killing was not the objective. I just wanted to have the person under my complete control, not having to consider their wishes, being able to keep them there as long as I wanted. That was what Jeffrey wanted. That was what Jeffrey said. Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in February 1992 
a total of 957 years. He was then sentenced three months later to an additional life term for the murder of Stephen Hicks. Jeff was sent to Columbia Correctional Facility in Wisconsin and placed on suicide watch in a single cell. In April 1994, Jeffrey requested to be put in general population as he was very depressed being segregated. He became religious in jail and actually got baptized. Coincidentally enough, this baptism took place on the same day that John Wayne Gacy was put to death for all of his murders of young men in May of 1994. His job in jail required doing janitorial duties, as were a lot of other prisoners doing the same jobs in jail, but that was what Dahmer was given as a job. In November of 1994, at about 10 o'clock a.m., on a work detail in the gym, Jeff and two other inmates were assigned to clean up lockers in the gym. One of the inmates, Christopher Scarver, hit Jeffrey with a barbell in the head and killed him. An absolute irony of the first murder that Jeff committed when he killed Stephen Hicks, his very first victim, with a barbell all those years ago. It had come full circle for Jeffrey Dahmer. The papers stated violent life, violent death in stories about the incident. I don't think a lot of people were surprised that Jeff was killed in jail, especially considering the crimes he was in jail for. I wasn't surprised at all when I heard on the news that he had been killed in jail. The real tragedy, I think, is that he ever lived. Well, folks, that wraps up for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to part two of the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. Please join me next episode for the next installment of What Happened, True Crime Chronicles, the podcast. And please follow or share this episode or the podcast, What Happened, to help us grow. Thank you so much and see you next time.